Welcome to Getting Credit, a podcast focusing on financial markets, corporate credit, and timely insights from Pacific Funds. Here's your host, Dominic Nolan, Senior Managing Director of Pacific Asset Management, the sub-advisor for the Pacific Funds Fixed Income Funds. Hello again, and thanks for tuning to number five. In our last episode, we talked about what I've termed the, quote, underestimated monster a complex, opaque beast that has hovered over developed economies now for decades. This monster, better known as deflation, has, in my opinion, defeated Japan, is winning the battle in Europe, and is fighting the fight in the United States. So in this podcast, I want to talk about two things. One, how do we slay it? And two, if we cannot or choose not to, how do we coexist with it? Before I get into defeating this, I want to take a second to say that I believe in free markets, but I also believe the best functioning markets have a balance of capitalism and regulation. I mean, here, take my industry, financial services. When left to their own accord, it almost crashed the world 12 years ago. And so, you know, a bit of a paradox here, but I believe that efficient capitalism requires proper regulation. I just want to certainly state that. And I also want to acknowledge that this problem that we're, that we're talking about here is not, in, is not easy. There is no silver bullet. And some of the things that I may voice may seem counter to free markets. But again, that's about defeating the monster, not whether we should or shouldn't. And so, now that that's out of the way, let's, let's get into this thing. When you think about deflation or disinflation, at the core of this, and the real problem that economies, developed economies in particular, haven't figured out is how do we grow? And in the last podcast, I mentioned that in spite of asset prices rising, that stocks, bonds, real estate, gold, unemployment dropping, deficits rising, interest rates had still dropped. But underneath that, it, it, U.S. real GDP growth has not been above 3% in a calendar year since the mid-2000s. Folks, that was during an acceleration of a real estate bubble. So that pressure, that downward pressure on growth and rates is what this monster is. Also in the last podcast, mentioned contributing factors to that, things that work for it and against it. And that's what, let's dig into that a little bit more on the solution side. If you'd listened to the last podcast, mentioned four factors that either helped or hurt the beast or were inflationary or disinflationary. All right, let's talk about the first factor, which is population. At a base level, population increases should also increase demand. And for developed economies, more population has correlated with more growth. And I'll even throw... Um, a thought out there. If you think about the inflation of the 70s, there's an argument that that was simply the baby boomers reaching their purchasing power area of their life. So the boomers generation started in 1945. So if you peg the middle at 1955, inflation was 20, 25 years after the middle of the baby boom generation. So that population growth spurred an increase in demand. 
So how does a population increase? Well, pretty simple here. We can have more babies. And in developed economies, what's happened is resources are needed to have more children, both financial and energy. And what has happened is this has resulted in a gradual decline in birth rates per household in developed economies. Another way to increase population is to have people live longer, which developed economies certainly are doing. And a third way is through immigration. And in that particular method, if you, if you incorporate immigration in a productive manner, you're typically adding educated, working class uh, people in society. And with the right opportunity, it should result in more growth. And ideally, you're actually adding a tax-paying working class without the 15 to 20 years of educational investment that is typically required for citizens that are born here. So proper immigration policy is also accretive to growth. But the base case for the United States, which again is, is growing, I think, from a population standpoint at a higher rate than much of developed Europe and Japan, I, I would call this a push. Our demographics, we certainly are aging as a country, and however, our birth rates are, are dropping. So let's get into another factor that we have to deal with, which is technology. In the developed world, it is an unstoppable force, in my opinion. The advancements seem to be increasing, you know, at an exponential rate. The good part is it does increase efficiency and productivity. And net-net, I think, does improve quality of life. However, know that it is a deflationary tidal wave, as so many aspects of labor are either disintermediated or outsourced to cheaper areas. And when you think about that beast, I don't think you want to try and attack it from the standpoint of technology. That armor is thick. And I think the best thing you can do is just use that element to your advantage. Now let's talk about a third factor, globalization. This particular angle is interesting in that it has taken a bit of a turn in more recent years. So at a base level, when you think about it, more competition should translate to more efficiency. That is, that's a deflationary element. And developing economies, predominantly China, were able to provide goods and our companies took advantage. And over the course of decades, you saw global supply chains become extremely efficient. And over time, though, as these developing economies grow, we should be able to export items to them. And this is where it got a little tricky. So when you think, you know, the free flow of goods and services can get disrupted by taxes, by currency manipulation, and I'll go back to the farmer in the village. If one village gets to sell goods into your village, but when you try to sell goods into the other village, but the other village doesn't open up, the result is an imbalance of capital. That village that sells goods to you ends up keeping more capital, which that is essentially what has happened with the U.S.-China relations. However, I do think with more recent events, the flow of trade will probably be altered. And my guess is that globalization may very well be weaker over the next five to 10 years. That is technically an inflationary element. Now, one thing, one angle there is we, there, there are certainly critical elements of our infrastructure that could be mandated to be manufactured and distributed domestically. In part, we've seen that with the pandemic through PPE, 
drugs, defense parts, industrial parts that are manufactured overseas, if those things are brought on shore, that should increase manufacturing. It should increase jobs. It will also increase costs. But in the end, it, it should also help with economic growth. Is this technically less efficient? I would say short-term, yes. Long-term, it depends on the quality of the work done domestically. If that quality ends up being a better investment long-term, you could have a win-win. I do believe that the tailwind that globalization has had for deflation will probably decrease in the near and intermediate term. So just giving a high level on population, global technology, and globalization, let's get into the currency element. And if you remember in the last podcast, the, the example used of the village, and if you wanted it to grow, one way, or to, one way was to get more gold coins out on the streets or just print more. That is certainly a tactic that we have taken as a country via central bank balance sheets, deficit spending, and that's been done in spades since the 1980s, quite frankly. So it's been four decades of increasing deficits and more currency in the system. And a couple things about that. One, is it enough? And the reality is, I don't know. And I'll give you an example, a very basic example. But if you go back to 1930 and you look at the, the deficit, or, or not the deficit, I should say, but the debt, our national debt, it's around, say, 10 to 15 billion. By the end of the 30s, that had ballooned to 50 billion. So through the depression, depending on you look at it, you know, three to five times the amount of debt on the system. And we were still heading into a recession in the late 30s. Then World War II hit. And in that particular case, we just poured money into saving the world. So no question, we had to do it. It's the right thing to do. From a pure economic standpoint, that debt went from 50 billion to 250 billion. So over the course of 15 years, from 1930 to 1945, our deficit or our debt ballooned 15 times, 15x. And that seemed to be enough money in the system to propel growth as a country through 40s, 50s, et cetera. And also remember when we, we were fighting the war, a lot of it went to manufacturing of, of vehicles, you know, tanks, planes, in our troops and our forces. So it went to production and consumption. So that was the example in the 30s and 40s. Again, very simplified. When you think through to today, is it enough? You look back then, there's an argument there's plenty more to go before you'll actually print enough to get growth. So that's one element. The next one is really now about how. And when you, when I think about that, the analogy from the last podcast, again, that village, if, if the powers that be want to get more currency into the system, you can either, in theory, throw gold coins on the street, or you can choose to give it to the bank, and the bank will thus lend to the people in the village to consume. I mentioned that that's absolutely the route that we went. So what has happened over the past few decades is there are significantly large pools of capital, whether that be through, you know, over in Asia from a manufacturing standpoint, in the Middle East from an energy standpoint, large pensions here in the United States, corporations, financial institutions. These are massive, massive pools of capital. So when you essentially 
drop a dollar into the system, over the course of time and through the cycle, those pools of capital end up accumulating more. And when you and they have taken that and used it to finance more consumption. That has been the trade. And we've gotten to a point where so much of what we're spending are going into those large pools. So it really begs the question then how, how should we be distributing currency? And this is, it's a very complex thing, but you want it to be an investment. And, and I would argue that when you pay out entitlements, that's not an investment. That's essentially a, a debt. So how to spend in a manner that leads to growth is really the, really the $64,000 question, in my opinion. And it, you know, if you want to get growth, say, oh, well, why don't we just burn down a house, rebuild the house? In that particular case, you, you do get growth and you do spend, but that, that doesn't really improve the situation. Or I would say you're spending a lot for marginal improvements. That's where, that's where the dollars go, go into things such as technology, even more technology, education, infrastructure, healthcare, energy, or climate. These are, those are elements that you would think down the road have a payback. And those are investments in things that could lead to further growth. Um, and education is an easy one. You know, we're spending a lot of money for children to grow and educate in the United States with the hopes that they eventually become productive and pay back the very government that invested in them. Those are really long-term decisions. Those are decisions that may take 30 years plus to get a payback. And my observation is that inclination, given all the promises that we've made and, and agendas that come up, what gets in the way of those, those long-term, you know, hard things to stick with decisions, you know, timelines alter, bureaucracy increases, obviously the political agendas change. And there's even a base philosophy should corporations or for, you know capital capital markets make the decision on how to spend or should governments make a decision on how to spend and in my opinion it's probably best if both have a balance there but again is the is the currency enough is, is the amount of currency we're printing enough argument either way but on the how that's where i think we're running into problems on the mechanism and those are where difficult policy decisions that have some protection to stick through things long-term and invest in the infrastructure of, of the country are where we can get payback and get growth longer term. So now that I've highlighted four different areas around how to combat a deflationary monster, population, again, I view as a push, technology that strengthens disinflation, but that's not necessarily bad. Globalization is probably going to hurt deflation because I think globalization is going to be hurt over the next five to 10 years. And then currency. We have certainly shown an inclination to print, but I, but I do feel there needs to be, we need to address or should address the how. We probably should take a step back and just see if, what if we aren't, and ask ourselves, what if, what if we can't slay this? Or what if we even decided that we don't want to slay this? Because there is certainly an argument that, you know, disinflation helps general consumption because the power of the purchasing power of the currency in theory should be greater in the future. And I, I do understand that. I, I think we have to, 
from a capital market standpoint, you look through to Japan as a proxy where they've had very minimal growth for decades, very low rates for three decades, and just an element of, of stagnation in there. So again, that's where so the, the beast has, has defeated Japan. Europe's been in that camp now for seven, eight years. And you've seen, you've seen through this pandemic, which is significantly deflationary, by the way, everyone. We are headed there. And that may not be all bad, but there are elements that we should be prepared to address. When you think about slow to no growth, and so when savers, they certainly suffer because they're not going to receive very much income for their investments. So the incentive to save is dramatically diminished. But I think when you get through to society, if you're in a situation where you have disinflation, it probably leads to less investment, could lead to less demand, lead to less employment. And that we talked about earlier, that cycle, you know, lower demand, employment, and investment. Once you get in that whirlwind, then I think you're faced with a couple of challenges on, for all intents and purposes, uh, preventing the natives from getting restless. And you can be faced with a question of, well, either you have to find a way to get purchasing power or currency in the hands of consumption, or you'll be faced with social unrest and different increased revolutions, increased revolts. And I believe that that is, to some extent, what we've seen, not only this year, but also over the past decade. I mean, to many extent, the election in 2016 was a revolt. The frustration over the progress of the average worker has permeated through much of the narrative for years that everyone, you know, you're, are you really better off? Are you really better off? And that's where all the things we just talked about when you have slower growth and the reasons behind it leave society and the unrest, the unrest today, although certainly is, has other elements to it. There's a large socioeconomic element to this unrest. And that is to me, one of the consequences of slowing growth and this, this monster that we've talked about. If you've gotten this far, thank you for listening to this perspective. It's something that I have thought about for quite some time. And to keep with tradition, time for a little levity. How many economists does it take to change a light bulb? None. The invisible hand will do it for him. Thank you again, and stay tuned. This podcast is for financial professional use only and not for use with the public. All investing involves risk, including the possible loss of the principal amount invested. The views in this commentary are as of October 2nd, 2020 and are presented for informational purposes only. These views should not be construed as investment advice 
an endorsement of any security, mutual fund, sector, or index, or to predict performance of any investment. The opinions expressed herein are subject to change without notice, as market and other conditions warrant. Any performance data quoted represents past performance, which does not guarantee future results. Any forward-looking statements are not guaranteed. All material is compiled from sources believed to be reliable, but accuracy cannot be guaranteed. Sector names in this commentary are provided by the fund's portfolio managers and could be different if provided by a third party. Pacific funds are distributed by Pacific Select Distributors LLC, member FINRA and SIPC, a subsidiary of Pacific Life Insurance Company, Newport Beach, California, and are available through licensed third parties. Pacific funds refers to Pacific Funds Series Trust.